This episode of 1801 Live was originally recorded during a 12-hour podcast-a-thon streamed live on August 28th from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. The Give Black Podcast-a-thon benefited U of SC's One Creed, One Carolina campaign, which supports initiatives that elevate and encourage black students, faculty, and staff. Together, our five hosts and over 20 guests helped raise more than $10,000 for the campaign over 12 hours. Find more information on the podcast-a-thon and the link to donate at www.garnetmedia.org slash giveblack. Thank you so much for coming on. I know that I've been the one uh, corresponding with you, so I'm very familiar through email, but it's nice to formally uh, meet you, still virtually, but uh, I'll let Lauren introduce herself and then we'll get started with today. Thank you for coming All right, on. Are we, are we already live? We are already live. Okay. <laughs> and hi, Dr. Anderson. My name is Lauren and um, I have a consulting firm here in South Carolina where I do political public affairs work. So excited to learn more about you. Wonderful. Nice to meet you both. So to get started, if you could just introduce yourself to the audience and then we'll go into key topics that I would love to talk about with you. All right. Well, my name is Christian Anderson. I'm a associate professor of higher education here at uh, University of South Carolina. And what does that mean? The study of higher education is the study of how colleges and universities work or sometimes don't. Uh, I, in particular, we look at their organization, how you know student behavior, student uh, theories of student development. Um, my particular focus is on the history of higher education and on higher education policy and comparative higher education, how higher education works uh, uh, around the world. And my work on the history of higher education got me involved in a project that lasted, well, it lasted over seven years and it continues to this day because even though the statue went up, we continue to work with Professor Greener. And um, so I'll just change my background for a minute. There's the Richard T. Greener statue. And uh, so along with some other colleagues and students and uh, alumni, uh, and other community members, we worked on that from 2010 until the statue went up in February of 2018. So I can leave that virtual background up or I can go back to my, my office, whichever you prefer. It has to stay up. It has okay. to stay up. <laughs> okay, perfect. But I know you touched a little bit on um, the project that you've been working on for so long. And I know an article just came out, but if you could give a little bit more insight on that process and what it took in order for the Richard T. Granner statue to be placed on campus and then all of the work that you're doing even afterwards. So it's kind of sounding like it's a living project to where it's continuous work being done even after the statue stands today. Yeah, so my colleague, uh, Catherine Chaddock, uh, she retired a few years ago, but she also taught the history of higher education uh, as well. And um, we would both talk about Richard T. Greener in our class, but honestly, neither of us knew a lot about him. And we can talk more about why that history was uh, suppressed or you know not well known later. But in any case, uh, 
even as historians of higher education, we did not know a lot about him, but we, we mentioned him, we talked a little bit about him. And then we were at a conference um, in Boston, in Cambridge, uh, near Harvard. And Catherine came across uh, a plaque uh, commemorating him as the first black graduate of Harvard in 1870. And it was not on the Harvard campus, it was across from Harvard Square, right next to campus. And so the next week she's in her class the, on the history of higher education. And she mentions this to her students. And she says, you know, and she uh, even put a picture of it up on the screen and says, look what I found in, in, uh, in Cambridge. And one of the students raises his hand and says, well, why don't we know about him here? Why don't we have something on this campus about Richard T. Greener, uh, who was our first black professor? I should have mentioned that uh, starting in 1873 through 1877. And Dr. Chaddock says, well, that's a really good question. So she comes back after teaching and she knocks on my door and says, hey, Christian, uh, I just had this conversation with my students. Uh, what do you think? Should we do something about Greener? And I said, well, sure, what? And she goes, I don't know, let's talk about it. And so it literally started as a question. And then it led to an informal conversation and then an informal committee and then, you know, I can talk you through the rest of it, but then it took off from there. But the, the thing that I love the most about it is that it started with a question from a student uh, who said, why don't I know more about him and why don't we have something here on this campus? Now, I will say we, do, we did have before the statue two important things uh, about him. One is the Richard T. Greener uh, scholarship in the Black Alumni Council uh, black alumni, yeah, Black Alumni Council. But of course, that has a limited audience. That's not something that the entire campus sees all of the time. And the other was um, a uh, portrait that was made of him by uh, artist Larry Lebby. Uh, I think it was commissioned by the uh, law school in the 1980s because he also graduated from the law school. And that uh, was hanging in McKissick Museum for a while and then uh, for the past 10 years or so has been hanging in the president's office. So that's important to have, but again, it's a limited audience. Not everyone goes through the president's office uh, every day and you know, some people never uh, go through it. And so uh, you know, while it was good that there was something, uh, we thought it was important to have something big and visible and, and significant uh, to commemorate him and the era in which he was at the University of South Carolina. That's amazing. And I know you mentioned the Black Alumni Council, but um, for the past, well, now it's starting my third year, but for the past two years, I've always made a point to go to the Richard T. Greener breakfast as a part of like the tradition of kickoff homecoming. And so that's where, of course, the scholarship is presented as well. We always have notable um, alumni come back to speak on behalf of the university and their experiences. Um, but if you could please go into, I know that the Richard T. Greener statue was very uh, important to you and it kind of was approached to you when a student asked that question, but assuming how much passion and interest you've put into this project, I was just wondering um, if you could talk a little bit about the importance of just recognizing um, past history, historical figures within our community um, here at U of SC. And so now we have a statue because of you and your colleagues and all the work that they did but um, just talking a little bit more about how we can amplify the history and specific figures that have gone through the university or contributed. 
Yeah, sure. So let's start um, on a, you know, have to go a little bit negative for just a minute, just so that we can swing back to the to the important part of your question. The the negative part is that some of this history has been either ignored or suppressed for a long time. So, for example, uh, the campus, the original horseshoe, was built and maintained by enslaved people. And that was not part of our history that we openly talked about for a long time. Now we have two markers on the horseshoe that uh, acknowledge that. Um, and we had a ceremony to unveil that and, and we talk about that. I'm not saying that that's enough, that's not everything, but it's certainly more uh, than there was. When I got here in two, even in 2007, I mean, it was something that historians knew about, but not, it wasn't something that was part of the conversation, kind of the general conversation. Then in, in the, during Reconstruction from 1873 to 1877, the campus was desegregated and this was amazing. We had a majority black uh, student body, the only one in the South at a, at a public university, the uh, only uh, campus in the South uh, to desegregate after the Civil War, the only one to hire a black professor. And, and it wasn't, it's not just significant that we hired these, that, that we hired this black professor and had black students. Uh, I've done research on who these students became uh, as alumni, and they were absolutely amazing. Um, and we could go, you know, through the list of, of everything that they did as lawyers, pastors, business people, teachers, professors, Supreme Court justices. I mean, the list is just amazing. And all that history was sort of pushed aside. In fact, when uh, Alonzo Townsend was sent a letter in 1936 asking him to come to homecoming to, to receive a commemorative, commemorative cane uh, to commemorate that he was the oldest living alumnus of the university. They didn't realize that he was black. They didn't even know their own history enough to know that uh, he, he graduated from an era when the majority of students were black. And so at that time they rescinded the offer. They're like, oh, no, never mind. We don't need you to come. Um, and if you go to the archives at the Carolinian Library, the Clariosophic Society debating books, the books that the debating society used, the students, when, they, when the white students returned in 1880, they, they physically tore some of those pages out or defaced some of those pages to sort of say, well, this wasn't really part of our history. This wasn't really part of who we were. So that's the, you know, the, 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 the negative side of it is that uh, of, of why some of this has been so suppressed. Um, but now, uh, you know, we know this history and, and we're learning more and more uh, about it all of the time. And so it's important for us to acknowledge it, to understand it, and, you know, to celebrate the good aspects of it. And so uh, something like the Greener statue stands as a prominent uh, symbol to remind us of all of the contributions that he made to the to the university, but also that we're reclaiming this part of our history as well, and um, you know that certainly there's there's more to be done uh, uh, for us to learn about our our history at, at USC. Dr. Anderson, I just want you to back up for a second because you said that we had a majority black campus at one point at USC. Is that really true? That is absolutely true. From 1870, 
in 18 in in October of 1873 Henry Hayne uh, was admitted to the medical school as the first black student at the University of South Carolina he was secretary of state of the of the state of South Carolina at the time and soon thereafter more and more african-american students enrolled and uh, before long it was a majority black campus uh, some white students stayed some left some white professors stayed some left um, but uh, yeah it was and here's just i don't want to bore you with too many uh, historical details but the quick answer to how that happened is that in 1868 when the state rewrote its constitution allowing for universal male suffrage african americans could vote well they voted in a majority black legislature and those legislators voted in uh or appointed three and then a fourth black trustee to the board of trustees at a time when uh, uh at a time when the university trust board of trustees only had seven members so uh, so obviously a significant portion of the Board of Trustees. Um, they then desegregated the campus and hired Richard T. Greener as the first black professor. And um, I mean, here we are right on the centennial of women's suffrage. Uh, the who gets to vote matters. It changes the, the makeup of who represents us. And if we want a, a representative represent a representative body that really represents who we are, it matters who can vote and who does vote. You just spit some preaching words right there. <laughs> who gets to vote matters. It changes the makeup of who represents us. Wow, you are you are really blessing me today. And can you, I'm sorry to be a super nerd here, um, but can you tell me how long USC, I'm sorry, Hannah, I'm throwing off your whole show. Um, can you tell me how long USC was uh, mostly minority like that? Like, when did we start? Because when did we get it? It was it was resegregated again at what point? One point two. Okay, so uh, it desegregates in the fall of 1873. And, and Richard T. Greener comes in the fall of 1873. Uh, with the election of 1876, reconstruction is at its end and by 1877 it's essentially over the they closed usc in june of 1877 all of the professors leave all of the students leave and it reopens in 1880 for whites only and it stays for whites only uh, all the way through september 11th 1963 when henri monteith now henri monteith treadwell who i understand is your next guest uh, enrolls along with Robert Anderson and James Solomon and uh, desegregates the university for a second time. And uh, it just happens that the other day I pulled off an old journal off of my shelves to, to photocopy an article out of it. And I had forgotten that Henri Monteith, oh, it's not going to show it. There it is. Henri Monteith is on the cover of it, um, showing her enrolling on September 11th, 1963. Uh, so uh, that was a, that was a nice little surprise that I had completely forgotten about. That is amazing. And yes, you're correct. She is the next guest. So we're learning about all this knowledge now. And then Lauren, next, after Dr. Anderson, you can ask the Dr. Treadwell, Monty Treadwell for 
her experiences being the individual, one of the three, to desegregate the university. Um, but I wanted to talk a little bit more about, because we've only just talked about that one role with the Richard T. Greener statue, but you serve in so many different roles, including project director for the NEH Summer Institute. So if you could talk a little bit more about that and the theme for this year. Yeah, so um, I applied um, along with uh, Kenneth Gaines in the law school for a grant uh, from the National Endowment for the Humanities uh, to do a summer institute for social studies teachers. I mean, any teacher could apply, but it's mainly geared towards social studies and history teachers, um, but K-12 teachers to learn about that black legislature uh, uh, during reconstruction. So the idea is that they would come here to Columbia. We would uh, have lots of guest speakers, you know, lecturers and learn about the, the legislature that you know, the, that majority black legislature uh, during Reconstruction, uh, both through uh, tours, you know, through historic Columbia at the State House, we'd go down to Charleston, go to the Penn Center in Beaufort, um, you know, all kinds of things for three weeks. Actually, we should have concluded that uh, a, a month ago. It was supposed to happen this summer during July, but it got coroned like everything else. So we were given the opportunity by the NEH to either put it online or to, to postpone it to next year. And I just couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to put it online. I wanted these teachers to uh, experience these places firsthand, see them firsthand, come to Columbia and, you know, see and experience this uh, in person. So we'll do it next summer. Um, but that's, uh, that we'll have 25 teachers from all around the country uh, coming here to Columbia to learn about this. That is amazing. And um, if you could speak, I know you touched a little bit on the topic of black leadership, especially during the reconstruction era, but I don't know if you have the full curriculum laid out, but if you could touch on a little bit of the insights that will be displayed within the Institute. Yeah, so we will look at um, who these, who these um, we'll look at the, of what reconstruction was in general, what the idea was of the idea of reconstruction after the Civil War. And it's one of the most misunderstood eras in, in American history. Again, because of this um, attempt to, uh, to, to misinterpret it or to, to push its, its true meaning and history aside. Um, so we'll, we'll start with that. What, what was reconstruction after the Civil War? Then we'll look at the 1868 Constitutional Convention, which um, led to the, you know, uh, universal, I have to put in parentheses, male suffrage, because of course there was not, uh, uh, w women could not vote, but universal male suffrage, so black men could vote, and they did vote, and they voted in uh, officials uh, at the city, county, and state level, and we'll look at, at some of the, who these individuals were, we'll learn about them individually, as, not just as a group of people, but who these individual people were. Some of them were former slaves. I mean, isn't this the most incredible uh, thing to, to think about that someone who had been enslaved is now literally running the state. And uh, it's that racism against that idea that led to things like the movie Birth of a Nation, which then put reconstruction in this terrible light. And the, you know, the, the KKK is the saviors who 
rescued the, the country from this, these horrible things. Um, so we'll examine all of that. Um, and then we'll, uh, uh, Columbia has the only museum dedicated to reconstruction in the, in the country. We usually call it the Woodrow Wilson House because it was where Woodrow Wilson lived when he was a teenager. Uh, he, and when was he a teenager? He was a teenager in Columbia, South Carolina during reconstruction. So he was living through this as a teenager. And unfortunately, it did not inform his views in a good way. He uh, is unfortunately one of those former US presidents who had some very racist views and racist practices. And it's too bad that living just blocks from the state house and blocks from the desegregated uh, University of South Carolina, he might not have taken on a different view, but you know that, that's not what happened. Um, but Historic Columbia did something amazing. Uh, when they obtained his house, they, uh, instead of making it just a museum about Woodrow Wilson, they turned it into a museum about reconstruction. And so it is the only museum in the country dedicated just to reconstruction. And so, you know, that's one of the places that we'll visit. So that's a quick snapshot of what we'll do. That is amazing. So much knowledge I have already learned just through this conversation simply alone. I know that we have um, 10 more minutes, but can't let you go without talking about the reason why we're here to um, promote the One Creed, One Carolina campaign that um, helps programs that support the Black community within U of SC. And so one of the programs that the funds go towards includes Richard T. Greener scholarships. And so if you can just attest how important it is to amplify programs, whether it's diversity and inclusion commissions within departments, all the way to scholarships that directly impact black students, especially during this time. Yeah, so I think that um, what is so significant about having a scholarship named after Richard T. Greener, not only was he a professor, he was an alum because while he was a professor, he attended the law school and graduated from the law school. But he did another thing that a lot of people, uh, you know, unless you've really read his biography and dug into his story, you may not know, is that he, helped create scholarships for black men at U of SC, at the University of South Carolina. And he recruited around the state and, and he got the legislature to designate funds on a county basis so that the state would be represented, not just the population centers of Columbia and Charleston and Greenville, but all across all of the counties of, of, uh, uh, of the state. And then that wasn't enough. He said, look, these young men um, are coming out of conditions where they did not have educational opportunities. Some of them grew up in families that were enslaved or uh, had you know, very poor, if, if any, educational opportunities. So he, he helped create a preparatory school at U of SC. He called it the sub-freshman class so that they could study for a year and get prepared so that they could be admitted at a, a you know, college ready and then start their freshman year. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's amazing that now there's a scholarship named for him at, you know, given that he did all of these, gave all these opportunities for, uh, of scholarships for, for students. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think it's, I think it's tremendous uh, that you're doing this. And I think that that's uh, such a worthy cause uh, for the Richard T. Greener scholarship and, uh, the other, you know, you have a whole list of, of places that people can donate. Um, all of them uh, 
uh, important. The other one that I think is relevant to our discussion is the civil rights, you know, Bobby Donaldson's center, because, uh, you know, this, this was something that, that Greener fought for passionately was, was equal rights and civil rights. And, you know, he, ha he had debates with Frederick Douglass after he left, left USC, uh, where they debated about the nature of, of uh, you know, the future of, of uh, black Americans. And, and, and so, you know, he was, uh, he was an important figure in all of this. That's amazing. Thank you so, so, so much for uh, dropping those notes of knowledge just in this 30 minutes alone. But I also just want to know, because many, we've been enlightened just being on this podcast with you, but how can others in the community become more knowledgeable about this information? I know that as a historian, you have spent years within books and researching, but how can a little bit of this information be outsourced if it is so that um, others can be more knowledgeable about all that makes up the place that we love to call home, so U of SC. Well, of course, you can stop by the statue, <laughs> and you know the plaque has the basic information. Um, uh, Catherine Chaddock's book uh, uh, about Richard T. Greener is very accessible. It's by Johns Hopkins University Press, but it's a it's a very accessible read. It's not you know. Um, so detailed that you can't, you know, that you get lost in it. It's a wonderful, uh, amazing story. And he, and we recognize that, that uh, Greener uh, was, you know, was a complex man in a complex time. He wasn't perfect. And, and the book kind of goes through like, uh, you know, his, his interesting uh, varied life. Uh, after he left here, he became Dean of the Law School at Howard University, a diplomat to Russia, um, uh, a lawyer, you know, worked as a lawyer. Um, so, you know, there's reading on that. We're hoping to do more with the greener, you know, the idea was that we would put up the statue and then every year we would have a, um, a symposium. And we uh, didn't quite have that happen in 2019, but if we can have it happen in 2020, my uh, dream would be that we could put on uh, kind of like Hamilton, a, a, uh, a video version of a play about Richard T. Greener called The White Problem, which is based on uh, an essay that he wrote that's called The White Problem, which is about why we have to take down white supremacy. Um, and it was written by a professor at, at Francis Marion University for the University of South Carolina's Bicentennial. So I would love to, to have that accessible that, you know, we could have on YouTube that anyone could watch. Um, and we've got the Greener website, sc.edu slash greener, it's got some basic information on there, but uh, we are going to upgrade and enhance that with more information uh, very soon. Well, thank you so, so, so much. This was very great. I really do appreciate all that you do, um, but more than that, just your continuous work for advocating for um, enlightening or making this history prominent to where others can see and reap the benefits of this knowledge. So thank you so, so, so much. Uh, it's, it's absolutely my pleasure, and I'm, and I'm honored that you asked me. Thanks, Dr. Anderson. You taught me a lot. <laughs> Thank you. Nice to meet you both. Absolutely. Hope you have a great day. Thank you.